Welcome to Adventures of Alice and Bob, the podcast where we get root access to people shaping the world of cybersecurity and find out about their journey, the events that have shaped their careers, and what still keeps them up at night. In the world of cybersecurity, the term thought leadership is often used and abused by vendors, largely meaning anyone who's capable of writing a blog or sending a tweet. However, today's guest is a thought leader in the truest sense of the word, having shaped the way individuals, organizations, and governments think about cyber. The Grook is an independent security researcher and world-renowned expert in information warfare, cyber warfare, and operational security. With over 20 years' experience in the information security industry, including offensive cyber, deviant security, cyber threat intelligence, and advising governments on cyber operations. He is known for pioneering novel cybersecurity principles and methodologies, and is passionate about topics like hacking, deception, counterintelligence, and cyber warfare. He heavily advocates for sharing knowledge and regularly shares his unique insights that come from combining his technical expertise with geopolitical and strategic analysis. As he's the Grook, the man with his own offset commandments, we'll be mixing up the format of the podcast this week a bit and discussing more of his research and analysis than his personal journey. The Grook, welcome to the podcast. Good to be here. Thank you for having me. Could I just say very briefly, can I get that right up? Because that is fucking brilliant. That's going to be the bio I send. Uh, uh, like I'll cut it down a little bit. But yeah, that's the bio I'm going to send from now on to, to conferences for when I need one. It's brilliant. You can absolutely <laughs> have that. Yeah, Thank no you. problem at all. So with your interesting background in history and information security, stretching back over 20 years, can you share a little summary of your journey and how you came to find yourself in the security research domain? Sure. Um, so the way I started out was I was just sort of kind of into computers and, um, you know, because I had no money, I was into Linux because that was a thing I could afford. And I got, uh, talking with a friend about putting Linux on a box and like, there's this woman who was on her front porch who overheard us and she was like, you guys know Linux? And like, we we're 18 or whatever. And I'm like, oh yeah, we know Linux. We're probably for three months already, you know, basically experts. And, um, we we both got hired by her company, which is a you know Fortune 100 or something, to set up their hacking team. All right, so they they basically brought us in as interns. They had someone who had a, a long career in defensive security before that, and so like this is the late 90s. So his long career is you know uh, it was government basically. There's nothing else, and so he basically trained us to do hacking stuff so that we could set up their red team and. I was kind of hooked. Like ever since then, that's that's what I wanted to do. And so from there, um, I moved to the UK for a while, where I was working at At Stake. Um, I left after writing an article for Frack that they did not approve of. Um, then I did a uh, as part of a, a fountain, like that as part of a startup, which. Um, I don't know what happened to it. I think it's it sort of ticked along for a while. Um, then I kind of, I was, I was a bit sick of being, well, I stopped working with that startup. I got kind of sick of being in London. Basically, um, I couldn't afford it anymore because uh, I, I found out the very hard way how contracting actually works. So uh, I, was getting, I was getting paid an excellent day rate for when I was working. And so I sat there and I was like, well, assuming I have, 20 days of work per month at this rate, I can afford this sort of expenditure. And then, you know, I had two days of work. It's, <laughs> it's a shame. So um, I decided to leave and go. Uh, I wanted to live in Asia. And 
I moved out here and basically um, not being directly involved with a company, right? Because being on the other side of the world makes it hard to show up at the office. Um, I sort of had to do uh, security. Uh, I had to do security via, you know, consulting and contracting stuff. So I, I got a lot more into um, doing offensive and research-related stuff at that point. Then, um, yeah, basically got to the point where I could do uh, things other than research with, uh, I don't quite know how to put it. I got to the point where I was no longer selling my man hours so much as selling like the thing that I know. So like it's building hours still, unfortunately, but it's sort of, I've got a huge amount of experience that we helped. And so that, um, that's kind of it. I mean, and along the way, I started a Twitter account and uh, spoke at a few conferences you know, here and there. And that, yeah, and, and the, the the Twitter or X, I'm still going to keep calling it Twitter, I think, because it sounds better. Um, account was actually how I initially came across you. And at the time, you were talking a lot about deviant security, which was just something not a lot of people thought about, not something I'd never thought about. What actually, well, in fact, can you explain to the audience what deviant security is and why you found yourself thinking about it? Sure. So, um, because of sort of like the the friends I was with at the time in the the late nineties, early two thousands, the sort of the underground hacker scene, um, you know, I was friends with a lot of deviants, for example. And so, like in this case, deviant means basically people who are not directly part of civil society. It's a academic term that gets thrown around. It doesn't mean doesn't mean criminal necessarily, but it's people outside of how things are usually done. Anyway. They need security as well, but they need it from, for example, um, the police or, you know, uh, the intelligence agencies. And when I initially started doing this, I just, it was an area that no one was looking at, right? People just didn't pay attention to it. And I thought, like, this is kind of important, right? Like, this is where, like, the big life decision things happen. If you get this wrong, then it doesn't matter how clever you were beforehand, like, it's over. So when I was doing it, that was sort of like, nah, how can I do this thing better than anyone else? And like, it would be useful for um, people doing the sort of things that my friends do. And then um, when you know uh, things evolved to the point where uh, internet surveillance and digital surveillance were being used by authoritarian regimes against regular people, it turns out that the exact same set of skills that I'd learned and developed and, you know, all of this theory and everything that I built up. And like, if you are a hacker and you don't want people to read your emails, then what would you do? Or like, if you're a hacker doing these things, how do you avoid police scrutiny? It turns out that those are the exact same things that you need to do if you're like, if you're an activist and you don't want the government reading your emails, same thing, right? You know, if you're an activist and you want to avoid police scrutiny or, you know, uh, malicious prosecution for whatever, what are things you could do? And so all of that stuff transferred over perfectly. And so um, deviant is, is worth thinking about, not necessarily criminal, but like criminal within the context of the society that's labeled someone deviant. So, you know, a someone who is a not activist for democracy would be a deviant in an authoritarian regime, right? And 
yeah, like that's like that sort of thing has always really interested me. And then, um, so I spent I spent years building all this stuff from scratch because there's sort of there's no infosec, there's no security stuff to look at back then. You couldn't go out and there were very few books. I mean, there were no books when I started, but they didn't cover any of this stuff. So I had to do everything from scratch. And then when I started getting interested in espionage, and um, I looked into counterintelligence, I found out that this is stuff that's been known for thousands of years. And if I, I could have saved myself years of research by reading a James Bond novel. So you know, uh, I, I guess that's, that's my plug for diversity. You know, I get people who are not narrowly focused. Um, and, and that kind of interest of yours and con constantly broadening out your focus, you know, if we, if we look back over the 20 plus years you've been in the industry, you know, we can see these things where you found a topic and then it's broadened out into something else. It's broadened out into something else. And most recently you've uh, gone off and done your own research. You've done uh, a master's in war study recently. So can you tell us a bit about what, what drove you to look into war studies specifically? Yeah. So um, it was the pandemic and everyone had a lot of time. And uh, a friend of mine said that he would pay for it if I would do it. So I did that. I went to, so I go to, uh, I went to King's College London um, and did a master's degree there with, uh, the way I looked at it is I already know cybersecurity stuff. Like I'm, I'm not going to take a, a course on like how to do cyber because that's just going to be frustrating for both me and whoever's trying to teach me. But I felt that my sort of geopolitical analysis was lacking because I didn't have the depth in that area. So that was what I, that's what I wanted to sort of buff out to get, um, yeah, like I, I got forced to learn international relations and I absolutely hate it. There's no way I would have done it on my own, but you know, it's, it's critical. Um, if you're going to be in that space, you need to understand how other people are thinking and what they mean when they, they're speaking. So that was that was sort of my intention when I did that, and I've really enjoyed the whole process. It turns out that um, when you do like graduate work, basically all you have to do is read, talk about what you've read with other people, and then write about stuff. It's brilliant. I love it. Like, <laughs> and we said none about this earlier. I would have gotten more degrees. It's really fun. Um, so what what I decided to focus on for my thesis is. Um, I wanted to look at sort of the cyber war in Ukraine. But what's interesting there is that um, a lot of the literature about cyber war is about either the use of cyber during peacetime, right? So if you and I are friends and I cyber you, does that make us at war? You know, yes or no. And then if you and I are friends and I, you know, spy on you with cyber, is that the same thing as if I spied on you by recruiting someone in one of your intelligence agencies to work for me, you know, and it's like, that's interesting, but it's very theoretical. Um, then there's a lot of stuff, which is very, um, you know, what does cyber mean in the context of this campaign or this operation? So there's sort of case studies. And there's also, um, there's also studies of cyber um, either in very, very broad contexts, which tend to be very much, you know, like assume a hacker of radius R traveling at constant velocity on a smooth frictionless plane, you know, and it's, um, it's basically not very useful. Um, and so 
basically, there, there turns out that there's this huge gap in the literature on cyber war during war, right? So it, cyber is always treated as an isolated domain. Like, if we're going to be at war in cyber, what does that mean? Like, what are the the thresholds? You know, when is it right for me to escalate into something else? Like, when can, like how many bad packets do you have to send before I'm allowed to bomb you? You know, and it's um, like all of that becomes very, you know, how many angels on the head of a pin? But what's actually far more interesting is like, how would you use cyber if you're actually shooting at each other? Like not all, not all this, you know, during peacetime or beforehand stuff, but like when there's an actual war and then not just sort of like when there's one operation, like when you're going to do a battle or before an invasion or something, but yeah. like you're fighting a war for years. Like how do you marshal your cyber, like how do you use your cyber when you have years that you have to look at, you know, and there's all sorts of trade-offs that come with that, which people haven't looked at. And so this, um, like the, the Ukraine-Russia war is a perfect example of like what happens when you're doing cyber during an attritional war. And by looking at that, you can actually see um, there's sort of, there's clear phases of evolution as the way that the Russians have used cyber has changed, but also sort of... Um, like so much has changed in the process. Like they, they, they've, like they've changed and evolved dramatically. And part of the ways that they've changed and evolved was, um, so basically in 2022, uh, I gave a, a talk about cyber, um, and I said that I, I use this tripartite um, framework for analyzing it. And it's a fairly popular one, which is that you've got information warfare. You've got um, destructive or effects operations, right? So you can send information to people, you can break things, or it or like break slash manipulate whatever, or you can read all their stuff, right? You can do espionage. So you've got basically, you know, info, effects, and espionage. Those are your three things. Info is not really cyber in the same way that like the other two are. Like you don't need to hack for that. So it's like we put that aside. That's sort of cyber adjacent in this in this case but the the other two right like effects operations when you're trying to you know cause damage versus espionage are intention because if you do effects then you stop being able to do espionage but if you never do effects maybe you know there's this opportunity cost that you're giving up so it becomes interesting of like well how do you how do you sort of square that circle with the other sort of intangibles that come across. like So if you spend, like hypothetically, if you spent eight years hacking a country just over and over and over again, all of those hacks will sort of develop a high level of resilience in that country because they will be used to getting hacked, right? It won't be a shocking new thing that, that freaks everyone out. It'll be Tuesday, you know? And so they will, right, so they will be psychologically, <clears throat> they'll be psychologically prepared for it. They will have plans of what to do because, you know, they've had to do it. And they will be very good at executing those plans because they have to do it all the time for years. And so when it comes time to do sort of like your wartime attacks, you'll find out that the people you're attacking are not, um, like they're not good victims for you anymore, right? Like they're too resilient to fall over at like the first sign of like whatever cyber aggression 
But um, one of the really fascinating things is that Russia achieved the same thing in three months. Right. So from the start of the war, like basically if you go to January 2022, Russia was like the security posture for Russia was very, very wide open. Like all of the companies there just they didn't care because of the covenant, which so the covenant is the agreement that if you do ransomware, you don't hack places that speak Russian, essentially. And so they weren't getting hacked. They didn't care. Right? That it wasn't a threatening environment. It wasn't hostile. And then after the war started, and like Anonymous and the uh, IT cyber army and all this stuff came in, when they started hacking Russia like crazy, the security posture shifted. And it, in you know 60 days, they went from wide open to closed. And so I think um, one of the things that's really fascinating about that, like, again, like all of this stuff is just fascinating. But <laughs> one of the things that's fascinating about that is like, when you look at um, the old theories about like how will civilians behave if you bomb them, right? And the, the very old idea, sort of World War II one was you bomb them and then they tell the government to end the war because they don't like getting bombed. And it turns out that it doesn't work like that. Like you bomb them and they don't turn against the war and the government. They just, you know, uh, bring together against adversity. Right. So it turns out to not actually do what it's supposed to do. And I think there's a lot of that sort of that same theory is being used in cyber. Not necessarily that specific theory, but that sort of thinking of like, look, well, I mean, logically, if you bomb someone, no one wants to get bombed, right? So if you bomb them, they're going to say, how do we stop the bombing? And they're going to go to the people in charge and say, stop the bombing. And the people in charge are going to be like, well, the way that we stop the bombing is we surrender, right? And so that's the same sort of logic where it's like, you can see each step, it makes sense if you look at it the right way, but it doesn't work in the real world. And the, um, the topic of the civilians, though, there's also an interesting thing, I guess, if you're bombing and shelling civilians who now have access to IT infrastructure, they can become hacktivists and they can start hacking back. Right. And then, you know, you talked about that hardening of operations. I'm, I'm curious, do you find in these conflict situations that actually people have a shared goal of defeating yeah. the enemy, but they're tripping over each other. So yes. the hacktivists come along, hack a system Absolutely. that then prevents an intelligence agency or a military yes. who has maybe different objectives on the same system. So how, how does that play out in the conflict? Right. So, um, you know, there's, there's a bunch of stuff that comes up. One of them is that, like, if you are an intelligence agency or the military, you can't actually share your future plans with a bunch of civilian hacktivists, no matter how patriotic they might appear to be or how useful their skills are you can't really let them in on secrets that are you know top secret stuff and so it's very very hard to coordinate useful actions with them because a useful action would be something that's sort of planned and coordinated to occur in conjunction with something else that can be exploited like you might have them you know hack a particular target and steal data because you want to look at it for you know, war reasons, and then you might want to leak it because it would be useful against the other regime or, you know, for whatever reason. But if you can't tell them what to hack and you just kind of hope that they come across something naturally and you can't tell them what to look for, it's very, very hard to exploit whatever they hack because it's just, it's completely random stuff. Uh, similarly, if you, um, if you want them to do something like, uh, you know, 
hack into a TV station and replace the broadcast with something else. Like that's a useful capability to have, but it's most useful if you're trying to use it in the context of something else, right? Like if you've got a, a specific show that you want to put up with a specific message at a time where, for example, maybe you want to do something else on some other channels and sort of get this all you know, uh, together as one big operation that sort of reinforces each other. And again, it's very hard to do because you can't tell people, you know, like, we really, really need you to hack into, like, I don't know, Moscow Station 3 by February 15th at 8 a.m., you know, because on, you know, at 9 p.m., we're going to be launching this thing and we need you to have at least this much time. Like, you can't do that because, you know, obviously they, they could be the enemy masquerading as hacktivists and hacktivists don't know about keeping things secret. So you can't sort of let that stuff leak. It's just... It's not possible. So it's very, very difficult to coordinate. And what you end up with is everyone sort of steps on everyone's toes. Right? So you've got the hacktivists sort of going crazy. You've got the intelligence agencies trying to do their thing. And a lot of the time, um, it's, it's harder for them to operate when there are hacktivists doing dumb stuff. So at the start of the war, there was a lot of DDoS that was going on. And, you know, this was viewed as a very sort of pat yourself in the back, you know, do your digital sit-in, your, your digital protest. You can be part of the whole thing. And, like, the targets would end up being things that people were trying to, like, the intelligence agencies were conducting operations against the target. And then the link would get DDoSed for hours, and they wouldn't be able to keep doing what they were doing. They'd just have to wait, you know. And, and so, like, even these sort of innocuous things ended up being... Um, you know, blockers for real operations. And, you know, as I was saying, like Russia has learned over these two years, they've, they've evolved and adapted. Ukraine has as well. And at the end of last year, we started seeing some operations where the Ukrainian uh, intelligence services were claiming credit for cyber operations against Russia. And, I mean, to my eye, they don't look like intelligence operations. They look like hacktivist stuff. But it's, it's notable that the, these intelligence agencies are involved with it to a degree where they can claim credit. And it, it, to me, that shows that they've found a way to work with the tools that they have rather than the tools that they want. And it, it's, it's interesting you mentioned the, the DDoS thing as well, because one of the things I observed was, you know, in the early stages, there was a lot of DDoS. There was also quite a reasonable amount of wiper malware being deployed. And then that seems to have backed away. Is that because they were they were burning evidence? They were burning things that they might want to actually come back and, and look at later? Um, so I, I can't speculate as to that. But one of the things I, I'm pretty confident in is they sort of, like they had their, their bag of tricks, right? So before the war, they had a doctrine of how they did cyber, which was, you know, uh, these sorts of things. One of them was wipers. One of them was espionage. It was... You know, it was these established processes that they could use. And when the war started, they, you know, we had this Viasat hack, this really big sort of set piece, uh, very well planned, et cetera, et cetera. And then after several days of the of wipers and things like that, there was the, what I call the pause. Right. So for a week, nothing happened in cyber. Right. Like they'd basically done everything they were supposed to do. And they didn't have anything else to do, and no one was telling them what to do because everyone was kind of busy trying to win the war, 
and they didn't have time for a bunch of geeks in the back office who were playing with their computers. And, and so these guys kind of sat on their hands. And then afterwards, the stuff that they started doing was just sort of more wiper attacks. So there's a, there's a lot of uh, access operation stuff going on, but there's also just a lot of wipers against sort of fairly random targets. And to me, um, it looks like busy work, right? It's, it's like when you have to do something and you don't know what to do, and the boss is standing right there over your shoulder, like you will find a thing to do. And if that means you're going to hack into, you know, like a, a pet care facility and wipe their system, you know, that's okay. You can put that down as like, I hacked and wiped a system. You know, like it, it, it's a quantifiable metric that you can show progress over time, even if it's not necessarily tied to the war effort directly. And so I think for, you know, that first year, quite a lot of the stuff that they were doing, like not all of it to be sure, but quite a lot of what they were doing that analysts have had a really hard time explaining sort of like why, why did they do all these things? Cause it's like, it's kind of random and it doesn't really like, it's not coordinated with anything over here and it doesn't really make sense contextually. And like, they didn't exploit it anyway. And like, this isn't critical infrastructure that we need, like blah, 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 blah. It's like, yeah, that's <laughs> like the bosses coming look busy. Like that's, that's what, that's what I believe was happening. And, um, that's not the case for everything, of course. There were actual operations, but I think they had um, sort of more capacity than they had actual things to do. That's now changed because over time they've learned, you know, what are the things that you can do during the downtime that will help you in future, right? So they've, they've switched from doing um, a lot of effects operations, which was sort of part of their, their old bag of tricks, the stuff that they were used to doing, to doing a lot of espionage. They, they really front load the espionage. Um, they've adapted to the new environment that they're working in, right? So they they get discovered and kicked out very, very quickly. So they now try and do all of their actions within the first half hour, right? So they will, when they gain access to something, they will collect as many files, you know, documents and everything that they can as possible, put it in a raw ball, you know, bring it back. And then anything they do after that is just bonus, right? Like they've at least got some data that can be analyzed. Yeah. Mm. It was um, the way in which they are collecting seemingly low-value data, but actually claiming it as a, as a victory because it was hacked, it was taken from the systems, even though I think it was the example you gave of the uh, Civil Aviation Authority in Russia, and you know they'd published a statement saying, hey, guys, we can't get aircraft parts anymore. We're going to start stripping the parts that we've, stolen from the West, effectively. Um, but then they were hacked. Exactly the same information came out in a much more boring, bureaucratic way. Yeah. But that was a victory. So yeah. maybe you could talk a little bit yeah. about the, the psychological impact of a cyber. Yeah. So I think um, one of, like, the way that the intelligence services in Ukraine have learned to use hacktivists is to sort of maximally exploit the random stuff that they get into. So if you are... Um, you know, the, the Ukrainian military intelligence, you don't particularly care about the Russian Civil Aviation Authority. Like, you, you care about what's going on the railways, because that's the stuff that, you know, gets shipped to the front line. You care about, you know, the, um, the Air Force, like what they're doing. You don't really care about passenger planes because, and certainly not like the group responsible for setting the rules for 
you know, uh, maintenance and stuff like that. That's just like, that is not interesting. But what they managed to do was they, they took this information and they packaged it in a way that highlighted the, the problems, you know, that the, you know, shortages are causing these responses, you know, uh, shortages due to sanctions, which are working, please keep up the sanctions have caused these sorts of difficulties that are now being addressed in this bad way. So there's, um, like they're doing uh, cannibalism of parts, which, you know, um, because they're not allowed to buy Boeing parts because they're under sanction, they take their existing Boeing infrastructure, and as soon as a plane sort of, uh, one of the planes will basically be used for parts. And so they had a process of how to certify those parts so that they could be reused. And this was like a thing passed by legislation. They had to get authorized to do this. So it was, it was publicly released, like it's public information. But obviously when the Russians put it out, it was just like, you know, a new, a new ruling has come out proving, you know, whatever. Whereas when the Ukrainian military intelligence puts it out, it's due to sanctions. Um, these are the emergency measures that they are forced to take. And it was... Part of it was spin, but part of it also was, um, you know, they were definitely trading on the fact that this was hacked, right? That this is, uh, it's got that sort of, it's stolen, it's illicit, it's a secret, you're not supposed to know about it, right? If they if they issued a press release, you know, after the, because the exact same information was out there, essentially, right? They could have issued a press release about what sanctions are causing to the civil aviation industry in Russia long ago, but no one would care. However, as like a hack with stolen information and here's a secret that you're not supposed to know, but we've got it for you and you can see this. It's really cool and exciting. And so, yeah, like I, again, like all of this stuff I find so fascinating. It's so exciting that they've taken essentially a garbage hack and made it useful. Now it, it didn't get massive traction, but it got far more than it would have gotten otherwise. And I think, you know, um, they will improve over time. So I, I find that very interesting. <laughs> And it's, it's those kind of things that are really interesting in the area of, of cyber in general. So if we think about nation-state cyber capabilities in general, you know, stepping a bit, bit back from the uh, Ukraine-Russia conflict there, they're really interesting in the fact that they don't have to rely on huge resources to build factories, to build steel, to build tanks, to build fighter jets. You have your people, your ideas, and your hardware. And if you can get those right, and those are potentially relatively low costs, the country can punch well above their economic weight. So I was curious in in what your view and which countries do this really well, make very good resources, you know, in, in relative terms compared to the size of the country economically, who does it really well and who actually maybe underdoes their capabilities based on their size? Yeah, so um, uh, I'll, I'll skip for now, like small but does good. For people who do it very poorly, um, there's, some, there's some that really stick out. And I think it, it's Germany where they've got a, you know, like CCC conferences held in Germany. Like they have a lot of really good cyber people. They're not, it's not lack of talent and knowledge and, and skills and that. It's just the government has no way of accessing and using that or either because of political will or for whatever reason. So they have all this sort of raw talent that they can't use. And it's a little bit shocking in this day and age. France is a little bit uh, similar in that they've got a lot of skill and they're, they're not sort of achieving at the level that you'd expect. But I think the one that stands out the most is India, right? India, basically. Yeah. So 
India, um, what they so on it's kind of speculation. Uh, let me go. So yeah, so the thing about India, right? Like, is uh, it's kind of known for its IT sector, right? Like, it's you're not looking at India and going like, well, they they just don't have enough computer science people to have a, a cybersecurity program, right? Clearly, that's not the issue, right? And they they certainly have the volume of people that they can, you know, find people who are passionate for security, or uh, they can train people for it. They can get smart people. They could have a huge workforce of talented, skilled people if they wanted to, right? And yet, for some reason, they don't. And the question is then, why? Why don't they do this? And I think part of the answer is that um, because there was this sort of hacker-for-hire industry, that industry got used by the military and the intelligence services as a resource. So you, you sort of, when you don't have a cyber program and you want to build one, it's going to take a lot of time and you're not going to have a lot of capability. And if you just buy one from someone else, that'll get you up to a reasonable level, you know, from day one. The problem is, of course, that as soon as they stop giving it to you, you're back down to zero, right? You don't have, you don't have your own capability that you're building up. And so I think that what happened um, is there's no political will to set something up that might be changing, but that certainly wasn't in the past. And um, therefore, there's been no process to sort of get people into a pipeline and, and build out the talent pool. And then they've been relying on this sort of hacker for hire sector to support them. And that's, you know, <laughs> that's not good, right? Like that's not how you want to run your cyber program with a bunch of people who send like phishing emails and, you know, don't really know how to do malware development and so on. So like India stands out as, as um, I would say disappointing in that, like they should be a power hitter. Like they should really be top tier. And they're basically not even on the board. Um, for people who are small and do very well, I think the Dutch kind of stand out. Um, they, they're a you know a tiny country, small population, uh, something like what is it like four million, five million? I don't know. It's it's smaller than Bangkok, right? Like it's a, a small population, and yet they you know routinely operate at the same level as NSA and GCHQ. You know, like the the big top dogs. The thing is, obviously, due to their size, they don't have the same capacity. So they they can, you know, just making up numbers. They could one they could run one really good operation, whereas the NSA could run you know a hundred in parallel at the same level. It's just you know it's a it's a matter of scale at that point. But they are absolutely world class. And um, uh, who else? Singapore is pretty good, but I don't know. I mean, they're, they're middling. I don't know. Yeah. I'll leave it at that. I think um, one of the, the topics you touched on there was hackers for hire, and there's a variety of ways that countries do this. You know, some of the uh, Western liberal democracies might engage with private companies and services. Some of the more kleptocratic regimes or totalitarian regimes might have the thing that you talked about earlier, where there's ransomware gangs who are sort of allowed to do what they do on the basis if it's got the Russian language keyboard installed, don't touch it. Um, and then there's other things that sort of fall in between. I know one of the examples that you've done some analysis on was the hack against the Qatar news agency where there's actually some outsourcing there. So maybe you could yeah. talk a little bit about what happened there and why that was interesting. Right. right. So the, this is, I think, um, it's been uh, criminally underanalyzed. And I think the, the innovation shown here is something that people should pay attention to. 
So um, a sort of brief summary of what happened is in 2017, um, the UAE and Saudi Arabia wanted to um, basically uh, kick out Qatar in some way. They, they wanted to, you know, they put a siege in place, uh, diplomatic, international incident, all this stuff. And they needed a pretext to do this because there wasn't a, like there wasn't a thing that was happening that they could, you know, rally people around. So in order to establish this pretext, they set up this operation where they were going to break into the Qatar News Agency, which was the national news agency, as you, you know, one might guess. And what happened was they, they, they were going to break in, they were going to take over the social media accounts, they were going to get access to the, the TV broadcast, and they were going to insert this, um, this fake interview with uh, the emir who runs uh, Qatar where he said things like, we are close friends with Iran, like we are friends of Hamas, uh, like, you know, we love Israel. It's all of this stuff that is incredibly incendiary and polarizing, which Qatar, you know, regardless of what they might do diplomatically, they would never publicly come out and say, you know, this is, this is where we stand. And so in order to achieve that, um, they faced this problem that they didn't have the indigenous skill set to be able to hack in and get access to all of these things. They faced this problem that they didn't have the indigenous skill set to be able to hack in and get access to all of these things. And the solution they found is really ingenious. So a businessman from the Emirates opened a company in Azerbaijan, and then he went to Turkey and solicited um, just you know regular red team penetration testing. And they got uh, five guys. Like this guy came out and he's like, you know, I need you to pen test a whole bunch of my company stuff, including our website. You know, which happens to be QatarNewsAgency.com or whatever, and so these guys did that, and they went and they they hacked everything, and like, so this report then became the manual, like the roadmap of how to break in and do this operation. So that was given over to an intelligence agency, which then followed through and did the actual attack. And so the, the, the fascinating thing here is that if you are a company, if you're a, the fascinating thing is that if you're a country that lacks internal capability, you can just go and hire it, you know? Like people, um, people will do work for you and they're not going to, if they can't read Arabic, they're not going to know one server from another, right? And so it's really, really interesting the ways that they found around this. And I think that sort of thing could be done a lot more in future. Like it's, it's an excellent way for someone who is willing to lie a little bit in order to get people to do things for them to get, you know, uh, results in cyber with highly skilled you, people. In this case, obviously, they solicited the services of a private individual. Do you see the, the possibility of rogue nation states developing cyber capabilities for hire for that purpose? Or has that already happened? Well, 
I, I haven't thought about that. That's actually a very interesting question. It, it seems like that's the sort of thing that uh, North Korea could do as a way of, of generating revenue, yeah. right? Like they've got, they basically have this existing cyber capability. They don't care who knows about it. They don't care about getting caught. They just, you know, and they, they yeah. use it to generate money. And one of the ways you could generate money is by hiring it out. Um, yeah, don't... Don't let the lawyers and, and private investigators find out about that idea because they will actively pursue it. Because that's the those are the people yeah. who do the the hacker for hire, yeah. of course. Little hire. Yeah, of course. Yeah, it's some interesting things that like, because if you like look at the way that North Korea operates, you know they'll go and build statues in Africa, they'll set up arms factories, and you know in, in some cases like crystal meth labs in in countries as a service for those countries. So it you know it makes sense to extend the the cyber capabilities they have there, especially given that they have, you know, proven track record in those agencies. Absolutely. Um, of of complex hacks as well. So like again, this is one of the great things about North Korea as as a you know a case study is ten or fifteen years ago, like they they were an embarrassment. Even ten years ago, um no one would look to North Korea as like uh, a, an exemplar of really, really good, talented cyber stuff. And now we're seeing these very complex, well-thought-out operations that they're conducting with you know, lots of moving parts that they managed to get to all come together. And it, it's just really impressive how they've improved. In kind of your general research, one of the things that always fascinates me is, is when you get into cases like that and you start to tease out these things that people maybe haven't seen and patterns and things below the surface that people haven't really thought about. And another example of that is your analysis of the, I think it was the Coinbase attack in 2019, <laughs> where there were some attackers, they had a zero day, they were desperate to use it, and actually to a large extent hampered their own operation by using uh, it. Could you just give us a, an example of why that you thought that one was particularly interesting to, to analyze? One of the cool things about this, um, the Coinbase affair, is that uh, this hack was going really well until they decided to use O'Day, right? And like in InfoSec, we're, we're always taught about like the power of O'Day, like that the you know O'Day is like the, the get out of jail free card, it's the magic card, it's the all of this stuff. And so we sort of we worship the O'Day, you know, but that's not necessarily a critical part, like. O'Day is not the thing that you want to use all the time. It's it's for those rare cases where other things don't work. And this was not one of those cases, right? So what these guys had done is they had emailed a bunch of people and they um so they sorry. So what these guys did was first of all they hacked Cambridge, like Cambridge College in uh the UK. I don't know if you've heard of it, a small little place from I might have done, yeah. It yeah, sounds yeah. familiar. <laughs> it rings a bell. <laughs> so yeah, um, they, they hacked, you know, Cambridge or whatever. They they created a LinkedIn account for a professor that they made up. Um, they put up a web page for this um, this fake uh, award ceremony, this fake award ceremony that they were going to do. Um, and then they emailed people and they were like, "Hi, I'm you know fake professor so and so from Cambridge. Your colleagues have recommended you as you know one of the stellar candidates in your field, and we would very much like to invite you to um, you know help us evaluate, evaluate and judge you know for this award ceremony that we do every year." And you know, people loved this. Like, wow! I mean, me. <laughs> you know, it's an honor just to be nominated. And so people really loved this, right? And they started engaging and speaking with these guys. They're like, yeah, great. You know, like, what do I do, et cetera? And so they, they 
got these guys on the hook, right? These guys had sort of given their trust over because they were, you know, you could go and look on LinkedIn, you could go to the website, you know, that this guy shared, and you know, he's there, all this, he's emailing from Cambridge. It's it all checks out. Um, and you know, he doesn't say like your friend Tom, and you go, I don't know a Tom. Right? It's just, you know, your your colleagues and peers have recommended you. Like it's pretty generic. And um so people were falling for this because it sounds great. And like, you know, Cambridge, this is the prestigious stuff. Like, and this is the, the world award for, you know, whatever it is, you know, excellent in my specific field, you know. And when I, when I looked at the level of control that they had over these people, that like these victims were fully taken in, hook, line, and sinker. And then what these guys did was they, they had an O-Day that worked against Firefox on um, like Linux and Mac. Or something like it was like it was an O day, but it was a little bit, you know, bit niche. Yeah, they had a little bit too much on the on the requirements and restriction side, and so they when they got all these people sort of like deep in, and they were like, okay, well, please go to like this website URL at you know Cambridge.ac.uk, whatever, and um, you know fill in stuff or whatever, it, or, you know whatever it is, you know, like read the terms and services or etc. And then from there. That's where they were launching their O-Day. And so, like, they were able to get people to do all of this stuff. And then they sent them to a web page that hacked them. And it's like, why would you, like, at that point, why bother? You could just literally say, okay, well, in order for us to, like, book your, you know, two-night trip to Cambridge that we will pay for, we need you to, um, you know, enter your details for reimbursement, blah, 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 into our um, university you know, financial system, which is this weird proprietary thing, you know, you're going to have to download a client and run it and then enter in your details, you know, but it's okay. But, you know, here's the website for the thing. Just download their client, whatever the latest one is. Here's the IP for the server you have to put in. Uh, here's your credentials to like, you know, log into our, our system. And, you know, you could get people to download and run something on their computer by just telling them that they have to do it as a prerequisite for taking part in this event that they now want to take Right, that they now want to take part in, that they've now sort of invested in, and instead they just they just go ahead and hit them with an O-Day. It's the dumbest thing ever, and so they basically got caught fairly quickly. And then once the first O-Day example had been discovered, um, there was a blog post that went out that sort of listed what they were doing, and other people came forward and said, "Yeah, that sort of happened to me. Like I was at this stage of their process." And so the, the whole campaign unraveled because they were lying, they were relying on using O'Day rather than on um, you know using the fact that they'd manipulated these people into doing what they wanted. So, so why do you think they added all that? Do you think it was just the pressure that they felt they had this maybe quite thing they paid quite a lot of money for to burn and they had to use it? Or because it seems a very technical, like a long way around the houses to actually to get their objective there. Yeah, it, it feels very much like, you know, it, you you and your friends are used to doing things a certain way and it's always worked for you. And then one of the guys shows up with like the new thing. He's like, you know, have, have you seen, like I, I got a new toy, it's going to make what we're doing just so much better. And everyone's like, well, I mean, I've heard good things about that. That looks pretty cool. Um, it's not what we usually do, but okay, you know, like... We, we can we can have a go at that. And so, it, so this it, is like the Microsoft Zune of 
<laughs> old days. Right, right. Like right. someone shows up and they're, you know, like a, obviously we've always used motorbikes before, but, you know, now I've got a Ferrari. It's like, that's great. But, you know, we need dirt bikes because we're going over, a, you know, uh, hills and stuff. Like a Ferrari is not going to work. Like it's super cool, but it's not the time to use a Ferrari. And that's sort of, um, that's sort of what it looks like to me is that they, they had someone show up, you know, either their boss or, you know, one of them uh, made this purchase as part of the group or they, they decided on it and talked themselves into it and got really excited about it. Like now we're in the big leagues. We've got O'Day, you know, none of this fishing stuff for us anymore. We're going to be doing like the real deal. And yeah. so they kind of lost sight of their objective and was just <laughs> so obsessed with, with how they were doing it. They weren't thinking about what they were actually doing. Absolutely. Yeah. So they, um, they failed at operational design. But, yeah, I'll leave that there. <laughs> and before we start running out of time today, I can't be on a conversation with the Grook without digging into a little bit of OPSEC. So um, question for you, what do the CIA's Moscow rules, the rules of secret work from the South African Communist Party, the 10 crack commandments by Biggie Smalls, I'm not going to jail for smoking pot, have to do in common with your own OPSEC commandments? Right. So um, one of the... One of the things about OPSEC and sort of counterintelligence is that the the process of keeping secrets is pretty much universally the same. Like right? there, there's just the basic principles of how you keep people from learning out secrets. And when um, you get into trying to teach that to people so that they could implement it, you know, so that they can live using the stuff, you have to break it down into rules that people can follow because you can't be like, okay, you know, here's here's a broad theoretical uh, foundation and just sort of apply this critically and correctly every single time. And, you know, you'll have to adjust it for every single situation you're in. But this is like, this is the, the base foundation of things. And um, you can't do that because people are not good at that. So you end up having to sort of break it out into these rules. And then what happens is because those rules encapsulate that basic framework of how to do things, Looking at them, you can sort of go backwards as well. You can see, okay, like this rule is about uh, compartmentation, right? It's about making sure that there's a need-to-know process in place. But rather than just saying, you know, ensure need-to-know, it'll be like, you know, don't talk about secrets in front of other people. Don't talk about an operation with anyone who is not involved with that operation. You know, it's it's more specifics on, along those lines, and so. The fascinating thing, of course, is that the like the ten crack commandments and the you know how to smoke pot and not go to jail follow these same foundational principles of you know like how to do secret stuff is you don't tell people what you're doing you know like you you just don't tell them that's a huge deal like that turns to be like that that's the stumbling block for almost everyone is you just is you brag about what you're doing and that's how you get caught right so. When you when you look at these sort of just basic rules, and it's like you know, don't tell people what you're doing. Don't let anyone know who doesn't need to know. Um, you know, hide what you're doing from other people. Don't you know? Uh, don't behave in ways that are suspicious. On and on and on. And it's it's fascinating because all of these things are just they're manifestations of the same framework of um, concealment, compartmentation, and cover. You know, like hiding, making sure no one knows about it. And then um, having a ostensibly plausible reason, a, a legal, legitimate reason for what you're doing, so that it's it can be explained, right? And um, this, by the way, is one of the reasons that spies do not carry spy gadgets, 
except for when it's absolutely necessary for an operation. Because it's very hard to explain why you have you know, a, a burst radio just in your car for you know, no reason. Um, it looks kind of guilty. But, you know, if you just have like a walkie-talkie or, you know, uh, some other sort of thing, like loads of reasons that you might have that in the car. Oh, yeah, that's the kid stuff. You know, like, oh, yeah, like I, I have a hobby where I speak to my friends like that. There's, you know, there's lots of reasons for stuff. Um, and yeah, I think the modern world we live in as well with iPhones and everything else probably makes that kind of activity far easier because everyone has a device that can do high quality recording, geolocation and everything else. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, that of course is actually, that's turned out to be a bit of a problem. Sorry to bring this back to Ukraine, but you know, you're raising, you're raising the important point, which is that things that used to be spy equipment are now just normal equipment for everyone. Right. And so it becomes very hard, right? It becomes very hard to prove that you're not a spy because, Having a phone is sufficient to take high-quality uh, geolocated video and then send it to, you know, the intelligence services if you want it. Like that, you just need a phone with Telegram installed. You don't need, you know, a contact and then a, you know, a, a encrypted messaging device and like a, you know, a way of contacting the the intelligence. Like you don't need any of the spy stuff anymore. You just need a phone. Uh, there have been problems for Ukrainians behind Russian lines where simply having a phone and taking a picture of something is perceived as spying activity because it's indistinguishable from spying activity. It's, it's sort of like the opposite of cover. <laughs> An ostensibly legal, plausible explanation is also, you know, uh, it's, it's in tandem with a completely illegal explanation. You can't tell them apart because they're identical. Very, very much a catch twenty two, isn't it, with with these situations for the, the people who are caught in these conflict zones where they they can't prove innocence or guilt, so they just assume right. guilt. Absolutely, yeah. And actually, these these topics we're talking about, you know, you've you've talked um, about your your coverage of the Ukraine there. And actually, if people are interested in learning more about this, you've recently uh, joined an Infosec podcast between two nerds, or I think the most recent episode was actually between three nerds uh, as part of Risky Business. So. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience there and what, what drove you to get involved in that? Yeah. So um, Between Two Nerds, which I'm sure all of your listeners are familiar with, is, is me and Tom Uren talking about um, cyber, uh, cyber stuff other than you know the daily news sort of thing. So what happened was like over a year ago, um, Patrick was like, you know, you guys both have very interesting takes, like these big views on things and they're not identical right like they're, they're, there's a lot of overlap but it's not um, always the same thing so you should talk and i'll just record it and people can listen and i was like well i mean i guess that could be interesting i'll try it out so i started talking to tom and so when we do a recording session we just we spend maybe three hours talking and produce a 20-minute podcast out of it. And it basically comes in the middle of our talking. Like, so we'll, we'll start chatting about stuff and we'll get kind of engrossed in something. We'll begin recording. We'll chat for you know, all of that. And then it gets um, you know, processed. And then when we stop, we keep going because there's just so many things to cover. And it's, um, it's just been really, really exciting because I'm able to get perspectives that are um, well-informed but not identical to mine 
and we can talk about things that are so I, I feel that this area of like cyber relevant, but not specifically cybersecurity, is just not well represented in InfoSec. Yeah. You know, like there's just so much interesting stuff happening, and it's not about like who got breached today or the latest set of vulnerabilities or like any of those things. It's just about like how do nation states, you know, exploit breaches or how do, you know, what does all of this mean in the big picture? And how are people taking advantage of it? Or, you know, how do you manage these processes, right? So, you know, one of the things that uh, we've looked at is like, it's complicated to do cyber espionage. Like, it's not just hacking into someone and being like, there, you know, I have gained access, I got root, job done, you know? Like, you, you need to do all of this support infrastructure, and it ends up being that that bit is actually a very, very minor, critical, but minor part of the whole process, you know? And so, yeah, I, um, I feel that this area needs a lot more high-profile coverage. That's my... Uh, and it's, it's fascinating because of that lack of coverage. You know, there's so many podcasts, so many things around there around this latest technical principle of vulnerability or whatever it is. And actually, that bigger picture thing is not only interesting in that it's a unique take and the two of you, there's great chemistry there, you're bouncing off each other and there's lots of ideas going around. But it comes back to some of the things you talked about earlier of actually these are kind of things that there's, an, there's a rhythm to them throughout history. There's, there's patterns that repeat and you can start to draw on that and think about it for your own personal cybersecurity or businesses cybersecurity that, or if you're a nation state, what you should be doing. So I think it's really interesting. And one of the things that I said at the very start of this was you know, I described you as a thought leader, but as someone who's worked in areas that have included deviant security, exploit brokering to Western governments, you're a person who could actually very easily have hidden in the shadows and kept a lot of your insights and these kind of strategic thoughts and, and principles hidden from the world. So what is it about sharing that knowledge and having those conversations publicly and doing your blogs and writing that is so important to you? Um, I I don't know. It's a compulsion. Like when I... When I learn new things, when I have, um, you know, a thought that sort of sparks me, I have to share it with people. So it began, um, I guess the, the first stuff I was doing was I was releasing in frack because part of what I was thinking about um, then, and I still sometimes think about it now, is that, so I'm like, what is the value of knowledge, right? Like if you know something, but you don't tell anyone and it has no impact on the world, like what's the point of that knowledge? I mean, like, it could be cool. Like, it's definitely cool stuff, but it's it's not, you know, doing anything. There's no, like, you, even something as simple as, like, sharing an insight that, you know, or, or whatever it is, just a small, simple things. Like, they're much better out than in, right? And so that's sort of been part of what motivates me. And then um, I find that... Um, most of the time when I write or I prepare something, it's because a thing happens that just, it, I get, <laughs> there's a fire under my ass. Like I, I get triggered and I have to go out and be like, you know, here's the way it really is. Or like, here's the thing that I, I think is interesting about that. And so, you know, I've got this huge stack of all these things that I write where I'm just, you know, here's the thing. And uh, then I release it because it, as I said, it's, it's better shared than kept private. It's the, the right thing to do, yeah. And it's not just the, the writing as well. One of the other things with yourself is, you know, when you when you listen to you speak at events and, and write things, 
you're very well informed. And if you go, if, if anyone's ever been on your Patreon page, you can basically choose differing packages, which mean you spend more money on books. <laughs> so you just say, all I will do is I will buy more books if you give me more money. So what is it about that that process of, yeah. you know, because we live in a world where everyone just wants instant Google searches and sound bites, but you take the time to to buy, go through the literature, whether it's academic, whether it's, you know, the, the history books, whether it's the masters on on warfare there what is it that's so important to you about diving into that that back catalog of literature um i I, i'm basically just a nerd right so i'm I'm a a nerd who likes things so you know as i was saying like there's this what is the value of knowledge well i like knowledge for its own sake so i will i will find things that interest me and just pursue them until you know i get bored which is usually two or three years down the line and Along the way, as I'm learning things, I, you know, it sort of overflows and I have to share. So, um, over, you know, these 20 plus years that I've been involved, I've now pursued so many different related things and I've spoken to so many people and sort of just collected so much. So, so basically, I end up with um, having learned just a large amount about a small number of niche topics. And then, because they're all kind of interrelated. And the other things that interest me tend to be sort of interrelated. It turns out that I, I end up having this sort of deep knowledge pool to draw on of all of these other things that are related to this thing, but give you, say, the, the insight from espionage or from um, you know, policy or from how hackers used to do things or you know, how this is relevant to the way that a corporation has to address these issues. So before we wrap this up for the day, if there was one piece of advice you would give to people in the information security industry to take away, what would that be? Um, you know, it's, it actually goes back to what we were talking about, which is the, you know, read the book. So one of the, one of the things that really stood me very well when um, I was starting out was that I would just buy the manual for something and then read it cover to cover. And it turns out that, you know, a lot of it you never use, but it's so incredibly useful to have a knowledge of the tools, like their entire capabilities and the ways that can be learned, that they can be used and sort of what they are meant to do and things that they can do on the side and all of that. And it, it's just, it's so useful having that understanding. It, it far outstrips the ability to, you know, look up which command line flags you need for a specific thing that you're trying to do. Because you can always look that up. But if you understand the tool itself, then when you're looking those things up, you can sometimes go like, well, the solution everyone else is using is not the best use of this tool. Like It can also do this other thing, which is much better. And so that's what I'd say is that, you know, um, basically read the manuals, um, but, you know, also just read books outside of InfoSec for a bit because there's a lot of... Uh, there's a lot of value in the humanities. That's a fantastic, fantastic recommendation for people yeah. out there, actually. And, you know, we normally get very much, people say, enable MFA, enable these things, but it very much fits with your philosophy and the, the things we've seen of take that step back, look at the bigger picture, understand what's going on in the world because there are lessons to be learned from other systems, other things that are out there. And if people want to find out more about your work or buy you some books, or get in touch, what's the best places to go and find information about the group? So uh, I guess the, the easiest way to contact me would be on uh, Twitter, uh, at the Grug, T-H-E, and then Grug, as it sounds. 
<laughs> and then, um, yeah, so I, I have a Patreon, which um, uh, I, I haven't been paying much attention to, to be honest. In fact, I can't even cash out from it because of fucking this dumb stuff. So I, I, I need to shut it down. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm on uh, Mastodon um, on uh, the InfoSec Exchange, I think it is. Uh, the one that everyone else is on. Um, I, I don't go there very much. And I'm on Blue Sky, um, which I also don't go very. Yeah, basically just <laughs> use Twitter. Uh, yeah, that's where I am. We'll, we'll stick some links to those profiles uh, in the bio for this episode. So unfortunately, that's all we have time for today on Adventures of Alice and Bob. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to the Rook today. I have to thank you for doing everything that you've been doing and continuing to shine a light on the bigger picture around cyber operations across the globe. If you haven't already checked it out, I highly recommend looking at the risky business between two or possibly three nerds this week, uh, as well as the back catalogue of blogs, talks, Twitter posts uh, of the Grooks available online. As always, thanks to super producer Ben, control desk Kramer, and the team at Beyond Trust who make this podcast happen. I'm James Maud, and this has been the adventures of Alice and the Grook.